All right. Well, good to see everybody again uh, tonight, and we are uh, kind of back on track. Uh, it was a busy weekend. I missed, uh, missed, you know, well, I guess I didn't miss you guys at all because I was here last Wednesday, and but it was just a lot of travel and a lot of exciting things happening. Um, both of the messages that I gave in Tulsa are available to watch at the Not By Works website, right there on the homepage, the first two uh, spots in the highlight carousel are those two messages. Um, kind of a, a interesting story. The second message, which was on Saturday morning, was interrupted twice at the hotel by a fire alarm, and it was really distracting. It was you know kind of delayed us the first time about ten minutes, the next time just a, a minute or so. But um, I kind of went with the flow, and we've edited that out of the video presentation, although if you're paying close attention, you might notice a spot where kind of one sentence ends and the next one starts, and there it seems a little bit abrupt. That's just because the best we could do to get that out of the video. But anyway, a reason I bring that up is I was talking to someone today who emailed me a clip from Catherine Austin Fitch. You probably know that name. If you don't know that name, you should look her up. She's a, just a great uh, a Christian lady, but does a lot of work in the area of global finance and also just, you know, being aware of what's going on. Kind of the same type of stuff that we talk about in Spirit of the Antichrist. But they sent me a clip of her just recently being interviewed by Dr. Lee Merritt. And, or being, you know, I don't remember who was interviewing who, but anyway, the two of them were on the interview. <clears throat> and she commented in passing, because in that interview, it, the gal was at a hotel and the alarm went off. And Catherine Austin Fitz commented that it is not at all uncommon when they want to interrupt and distract you from the message to do that. And I got to thinking, you know, for years I've had some anomalies and strange things happen, like anybody that does interviews and stuff from time to time. But it's really ratcheted up in the last year and a half since I started speaking out about COVID and some of that stuff. It seems like radio phone interviews I've done radio interviews I've done there's always some technical glitch and we've got to pause and we've got to fix it and just makes you wonder but anyway both of those messages are uh, available um, to watch and then just a couple of housekeeping things uh, I'm gonna be gone the next two Wednesdays so we're gonna just take a break give you a chance to settle into the summer enjoy some downtime uh, on Wednesday nights and then we'll pick back up again on June 23rd is that right? June 2nd, 9th, 26th, excuse me, 26th. And I've got emails scheduled to go out to you on Wednesdays, just like usual, reminding you that there's no Bible study the next two weeks. Um, but we'll resume again uh, in uh, two weeks from today, which will be the 26th. So, yeah. Right, the first time is 23rd. 23rd. Well, today's the 2nd, isn't it? 2nd, 9th, 16th. Oh, I'm getting 19, thank you. So I was right the first time, 23rd, thank you. I should have trusted myself. Uh, so, yeah, I'm getting the math all confused. But, yeah, 9th and 16th, no Bible study. 23rd, we will resume. And that's what the email says. So, uh, so be aware, spread the word. If you know someone that's not here tonight, make sure they get the word. Um, as far as uh, the next two Sundays, we're excited to have some guest speakers here. Brad Maston, who's been here before, will be speaking Sunday. And then the following week, our founding pastor, John Schrag, will be speaking and looking forward to having them uh, fill in. So pray for us. We leave Friday for first for Texas, uh, doing a conference in Lubbock over the weekend. And then straight from there, 
west to Fresno, doing a, another weekend Friday, Saturday, Sunday conference there. Just pray that the gospel goes forth and that it's just a really fruitful time in the Word uh, at those two places. Okay, then one other housekeeping thing I want to mention that we should finish up tonight with this subtopic that we've been on now, it looks like for 11 weeks, or this is the 11th week, called What the Gospel is Not. And then uh, we'll be taking a break for two weeks. When we resume, I want to continue to focus on general topics related to salvation and the gospel and eternal life and those types of things, discipleship. Um, but I want to focus first on uh, eternal security. I think that's going to be my uh, target. We'll spend a couple weeks uh, giving you some biblical theological proof of the doctrine of eternal security. And then related to that, the doctrine of assurance you know, they're not the same thing. Uh, you can believe in eternal security and not have assurance. A lot of people do, and that's wrong. They should have assurance uh, if they're saved. Um, but you cannot deny eternal security and claim to have assurance. So eternal security has to be true for anybody to be assured that they're going to heaven. If the doctrine of eternal security is not true, nobody could ever be sure they're going to heaven. So we're going to talk about those two, spend some few uh, weeks on that, and then kind of see where that leads. But we've touched on that a lot in, you know, both in here and in offline with some emails and questions and comments and things. And uh, so I just thought, well, this let's just nail it down and, dr and drive that point home. So that'll be our next topic. All right, any questions about any of that or comments or thoughts? Okay, so let's review again, and I, I, I started to uh, hide these uh, opening verses, but I thought, you know, it's really important that we crystallize this in our mind and drive the point home. So the premise, once again, is that salvation is not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to His mercy, uh, He saved us. And I've pointed out before that both of these verses, the Greek construction is identical, it uh, just so happens that in the New King James, they translated Ephesians 2, 9, not of works, and in Titus, they translated it not by works, but it's actually the same. The idea is that salvation is totally and completely free by grace. And if it's not grace, it's not free. If it's not free, it's not grace. We absolutely bring nothing to the table. There's nothing we can bring to the table. It is completely the work of the Lord. We must simply accept it. And uh, that is why the Bible... Uh, concludes near the end of chapter 22 of Revelation with the universal call that him who whoever desires take the water of life freely. So if anybody ends up in hell, it's, they have nobody to blame but themselves. You can't get freer than free. And um, yet uh, p the pride of men and women is so strong that it, it often keeps people from accepting the free gift. And in my book, uh, my latest book, Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell, the whole premise of that book is to dive into um, the thinking errors, uh, for lack of a better word, the psychology, but I'm not a, into pop psychology, but that just means the study of, of life, uh, the psychology behind uh, what would keep someone from refusing the free gift of eternal life. Uh, if anybody ends up in hell, ultimately there's one reason, unbelief. Jesus said in John 5, if you don't believe in me, you'll die in your sins. But uh, what is it that keeps people from believing the gospel? And so uh, there are a lot of things that the devil uses to distract people from the simple, clear, and accurate gospel message, and a lot of things that emotionally can keep people from uh, understanding and believing the gospel. 
But ultimately, uh, God has done everything He can. He paid the price. He made the offer. He's constantly drawing people to Himself. Uh, the Spirit of God is, is active on the earth, convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But He will not force anyone uh, into heaven. Uh, he didn't. He didn't. He gave us the free choice to sin to begin with. He didn't obviously force us to sin, nor did he force us to obey. He created us in his image with free will, and we chose to sin. Similarly, in providing the remedy for our sin problem, he doesn't force anybody to accept that payment. Uh, he made the payment and freely offers it to everyone, but we must accept it. And the acceptance of a gift is not a work. Uh, a lot of times uh, Calvinists uh, say, well, you know, if you're taking the gift, that's a work. Well, that's silly. I mean, nobody nobody thinks that in any other context except, except the false notion of Calvinist teaching over the last 400 years or 500 years. Um, uh, accepting a gift is not a work. It's the exact opposite of a work. By nature, a gift is something you, you cannot earn. It's freely given. Uh, if you earned it, it would be a, it would be a work. And so to say that by accepting a gift you're doing a work is, is nonsensical, and it certainly doesn't comport with the biblical uh, teaching. Uh, in Scripture, the way we receive this free gift, of course, is by faith, and you've heard me say that uh, many times. So there are three uh, tenses, if you want to call it that, of salvation, past, present, and future. Um, we focused a lot on the first two of those, but just to review... Uh, we are saved in the past from the penalty of sin once for all the moment we believe the gospel. So when you trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, in that instant, you were saved once for all from the penalty of sin. That's called justification, being declared righteous. Salvation in the past. Today, right now, as a believer, as a child of God, we are being saved in the present from the power of sin. As we yield to the Holy Spirit, as we walk in the flesh, as we uh, obey His Word, uh, and, and as we're growing in Christ's likeness, we are being saved from the power of sin. And the term the Bible uses for that most often is sanctification. So justification is being saved from sin's uh, penalty once and for all when you trust in Christ. Sanctification is being saved from sin's power gradually over time as a believer, as you walk in, in, in by faith and as you stay in the Word, as you fellowship with other believers. But there's a future tense salvation too, and that is when we are saved once for all from sin's very presence. And that's what the Bible calls glorification. And that happens in the future when we either die or if the Lord comes back in our lifetime at the rapture. When this mortal puts on immortality, when this corruptible puts on incorruption, and we are all changed, uh, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. So three tenses of salvation, past, present, and future. Glorification, or justification, justification, sanctification, glorification. Past, present, future. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Saved from sin's penalty, eternal damnation and hell. Being saved from sin's power, ultimately saved from sin's very presence. So uh, we focused on the first two of those from the perspective of righteousness because uh, as we're talking about th ten things the gospel is not, many times people weave works into the discussion 
to say that either you lost your salvation because of your works, or you, you disproved your salvation because of your works. Uh, somehow works get kind of brought into the discussion. And I always like to clarify the relationship of works and salvation. And so we've, we kind of zeroed in on the first two, salvation in the past and salvation in the present. And we called these positional righteousness and practical righteousness. Positional righteousness, of course, is the same thing as justification, being saved from sin's penalty. It happens the moment we believe the gospel, we're saved by faith. And uh, at that moment, the reason we call it positional righteousness is that the New Testament, in the present age anyway, talks about it in terms of being in Christ. That's a uniquely Pauline term of being identified with Christ. One of the 33 things that happen instantaneously, spiritually speaking, when we believe the gospel is that we are baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ. Baptism in Scripture always identifies you with something. Uh, it's really fascinating that people uh, tend to not recognize the history of that term. And baptism as a cultural and religious rite, R-I-T-E, rite, uh, predates Christianity by a couple thousand years. It was very common in pagan Eastern, you know, Near Eastern religions. Um, it was something that it was common in Judaism, a thousand years before Christ. When a Gentile converted to Judaism, they experienced proselyte baptism. People who identified with Moses' message in the wilderness received Moses' baptism. Uh, baptism just means uh, identification. Another interesting little uh, factoid is that the, the Greek term from which we get baptism is baptizo, but the actual translation of that word all the way up until uh, one of our earliest English Bibles, even before the King James Version, was immerse. It was a Greek word that had an English translation. Usually we only transliterate Greek words when we don't have a unique corresponding English word. And because the Catholic Church taught that baptism was a matter of sprinkling, they, they wanted to redefine the term. They couldn't translate it the way it had always been translated, immerse, so they just transliterated baptizo into baptism. And so for hundreds and hundreds of years uh, throughout the church age, uh, there has been this long-running uh, confusion over the meaning of baptism because of that word. And they essentially assigned it new meaning. And as you may recall, a big part of the Protestant Reformation was over this issue of whether or not a, an adult who trusts in Christ needs to be re-baptized, right? Which, according to Scripture, they do. Not to get to heaven, but as a, a step of obedience and a part of the discipleship process. It's a way of letting people know you've trusted Christ. So, But regardless of the form... Uh, whether it was Moses' baptism, proselyte baptism, Christian baptism, John the Baptist's baptism, which is completely different from Christian baptism, Jesus' baptism himself um, by John, uh, or Holy Spirit baptism, this, this immersion was intended as a symbolic way to identify you with something. And so at the moment we place our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit identifies us, baptizes us with Christ. Now, Christian baptism, which happens after you've placed your faith in Christ, it's not a condition for eternal life, but it is a command, according to Acts chapter 10. 
It, what does it identify us with? If it's spirit baptism that identifies each individual one of us with Christ positionally so that we're declared righteous and positionally in Him, then what purpose does water baptism for Christians in the church today serve? Well, it identifies us with other Christians, with the church. It's a way of saying, I've trusted Christ. I'm one of you. I'm part of the club. I'm with you, right? Uh, and that's the reason it doesn't, it's not required uh, to get into heaven. The one and only condition for eternal life is faith alone in Christ alone. But like many things that the New Testament uh, commands believers to do, pray, share their faith, be involved in church, live a godly life, all, all read their Bibles, all those things, it's one of those steps of obedience. And if you're uh, either watching or here in the room and you've never been baptized, having already trusted in Christ, I encourage you to do that. If you know to do it and you don't do it, you're, you're kind of living in, in, in disobedience in that point. Yeah. So in the Catholic faith, it's a sacrament. Absolutely, yeah. And so do they view it as a requirement to get into heaven? Oh, absolutely. It's one of the seven sacraments. The question is, um, in the Catholic faith, in Catholic religion, uh, let's call it what it is, is baptism required for salvation? Absolutely. So, and, and so, so also with many other uh, denominations within uh, Christianity, and also even in some conservative evangelical groups, like uh, Church of Christ uh, practices immersion, which was the biblical model, and again, that's what the word baptizo meant, uh, until they changed it to baptism and started giving it this nebulous meaning, could be sprinkling, could be in anything. But the Church of Christ practices what's called baptismal regeneration, that uh, you're not going to heaven if you have not been dunked. Let's just put it plain and simple. I remember I planted a church years ago with a uh, student. Um, by the way, can I just mention something completely off topic? But I got an email today that was very encouraging. And, you know, it's, it's, you're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice and share one another's joy. So I've been gone from that school almost 20 years, and one of my colleagues that's still there emailed me and said that in chapel, a former student who had been a student of mine and is now a faculty member there, preached in chapel, and for, I don't know what he was preaching on, but whatever he was preaching on, he was talking about all the people from the school who had influenced his life, and he mentioned my name. And I didn't even know he remembered me. And so it's nice to know that even 20 years later, not quite 20 years, 16 years to be, almost 17 years to be exact, um, you know, the, the, the people still remember you, if nothing else. So, but anyway, I can remember back when I was at that school, I planted a church with a student. And uh, during our first year, we had some people that came to faith and we wanted to, to do a baptism service. Well, we didn't have a baptistry. We were, we were meeting in a storefront. And so I called around and, and, and was having trouble finding a church that we could work out a schedule with. But I called the Church of Christ in the little neighborhood where we were. And I'll never forget, the, the pastor was like, absolutely anytime you want people to come and be baptized in our baptistry we're happy to let you do it and the reason was he knew that meant it was their rite of passage into heaven <laughs> so he, he of course he wanted it uh it did not matter to him that that's not what we believed and that's not what the bible teaches plainly um i mean paul said for example in first corinthians that god did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel well if baptism was required water baptism was required to get into heaven why didn't God send Paul to baptize? I mean, it would be a gross oversight if he didn't. And Paul plainly said, I'm not here to teach baptism. So, so anyway, baptism by water of a believer 
is what identifies us with other believers, with the church, if you will. Now, there have been all kinds of false spinoffs of that. There are some churches that think you have to get baptized in that local church only. Uh, it's called Baptist Briders or Landmarkism. Uh, they reject what they call alien immersion. And um, I had some fun with that one time, again, years ago, talking to a church. We just had two kids at the time. We were interviewing at this church, and one of the folks during the interview process asked what my view was on alien immersion. And assuming that surely they were not one of those kind of churches, I, I, and assuming that they would definitely agree with me, I uh, replied, well, I don't think aliens can get saved, so I sure wouldn't baptize them. Well, come to find out, they, a certain group within that church uh, believed that you had to be baptized in that church in, in order for it to count. And you couldn't become a member unless you'd been baptized in that church. And so they rejected alien immersion, meaning anyone who'd been baptized in any other church. So that didn't end well. Well, they're not, they're a cult, so they're satanic. The, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and you said Mormons, right? right? The Mormons are a satanic cult. So uh, now not every average member realizes that, but if you trace it all the way up to the top, upper echelons, it is child-sacrificing, blood-drinking Satanism. Uh, and they absolutely, uh, of course, they have different levels of, of heaven and different you know, ways of getting there and different upper echelons and so forth. But yeah, baptism is a big part of that. And I think they also, based on the misunderstanding of Scripture, think they can baptize other people into heaven. Like you can get baptized 12 times for 12 other people, right? Or is that Jehovah's Witnesses? No, it's the Mormons. Yeah, it's the Mormons, right, so I thought. So. Is it Mormon? I, and plus, I learned from a Mormon that only men can baptize. Hmm. Male um, leaders in the church can baptize. So, yeah, certain, only certain people can, can baptize, yeah. And then I was going to say, you know, that the Pope said that he is willing to baptize the aliens. Oh, he did, the Pope, oh, all right. Absolutely. The Pope does not, does believe in alien immersion. <laughs> there we go. I don't know if... Catholic, they wouldn't immerse probably, they would just you know, Oh yeah, sprinkle. no, they would sprinkle, yeah. yeah. And let me clarify too, that even though baptizo means immerse, that's not to say, especially since it's not salvific anyway, it's not sacramental, to use a term that was mentioned earlier, it's not what gets you into heaven, the mode is not critical. It's a difference between, you know, biblical description and prescription. So the Bible describes baptism, and it's done that way in the first century, but I have had a couple of occasions in 32 years of ministry where I've sprinkled a lady that was in a wheelchair uh, one time and another man on his deathbed in the hospital. You know, it's not like you can, you know, bat, you know, bring them and dunk them underwater in that case. So it's what it means. It's the meaning of it more so than the mode. I think the biblical practice was immersion and that Paul uses that as a word picture in Romans 6 and it's the preferred way. But let's not get hung up on the on the specifics. Same thing with the Lord's Supper. The other sacrament, the other sacrament, I can't believe I said that. The other, um, in, uh, in, what, well, my brain is fried, but uh, ordinance is the term I'm looking for. The other ordinance, there are two ordinances that the church is supposed to practice until Jesus comes, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And the Lord's Supper in that first century when Jesus uh, implemented it and inaugurated it was with uh, unleavened bread and wine. Well, we could do that with pizza and Pepsi if, if it means the same thing. And I've been a part of services like that with big youth rallies out on the beach or different places, and it's what it represents. 
It, you know, it wasn't the literal bread or the literal wine, although Catholicism teaches it is. Catholicism believes in transubstantiation, that the actual elements become, the very atoms of them, the physicality of them, become the body of Christ. And uh, anybody from a Catholic background in here? So you may know this, but uh, every Catholic church on their property has a designated spot where they... Uh, that is sanctified or holy, where they pour the leftover elements after each, you know, uh, observance of that sacrament that they call it. And they believe that even if a squirrel or something like that were to come and, and, and take a bite of a leaf that had some, that that squirrel is going to heaven. That's what they believe. Because the actual elements themselves are imparting eternal life. And, of course, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Pope taught that, and the councils and creeds taught that, but the Bible doesn't teach that. So, baptism identifies you with something. At the moment we place our faith in Christ, we are identified with Christ. We are baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ. Then every believer ought to go through water baptism as a testimony, an outward expression of an inward experience, um, uh, but that's something entirely different, and that identifies us with the church. But back to our chart, the, the column on the right hand deals with that second tense of salvation, what we're calling sanctification, or the spiritual growth process, the spiritual maturity process, that, that overcoming the power of sin gradually as we live by faith. And that is the difference between positional righteousness and practical righteousness. And the reason so many people struggle with this doctrine of salvation, eternal salvation, is because they've confused these two. And they see someone living in, in unrighteous life in their behavior, and they, they assume, oh, because they're living unrighteous, they must not be justified. They must not be positionally righteous. But what we talked about is that sometimes our practice in life does not reflect our position in Christ. It should. The natural, normal thing for a person who is in Christ, who's been saved by faith, is for their positional righteousness to work itself out and manifest itself in a godly lifestyle. That's normal. In fact, believers, who, whenever we sin, it's not normal. We are not acting like the new nature when we sin. Sin is out of character, you might say, for a believer. But we do it uh, whenever we yield to the flesh and not to the spirit. But the goal is to not do it. The goal is to walk in the new man, to walk in the new nature, to let our practice in life reflect that uh, position in Christ. All right, so with that background, here are, uh, just by way of review, what we've talked about so far. We said the gospel is not a commitment. Nobody gets saved by making a commitment to God. Okay. I understand that people have used that term. We've even called them commitment cards. And a lot of times people think of the beginning, the genesis of their relationship with Jesus as some kind of a commitment. But we need to reject that language and do what we can to avoid using it because it's confusing and the Bible never uses that language. The Bible never conditions our eternal salvation on some type of a commitment on our part. Uh, same thing with number two. It's not a contract. It's not a bilateral quid pro quo where we sit down with God and we say, I'll do this if you'll do this. Or God says, if you'll do that, I'll do this. It's not like that. God says, I've paid the price. Come one, come all. 
just as you are. If you'll believe in me, thereby receiving the free gift, you can be saved. It's already been paid for, right? The gospel is not giving something to the Lord. We talked about how that re, re, uh, turns the direction of the gospel 180 degrees, degrees. Instead of God being the giver and man being the receiver, man becomes the giver. And um, so uh, the gospel is not giving something to the Lord. It's receiving something from the Lord. And yet people will say, I gave my life to Jesus, or I gave my heart to the Lord, or I gave my all to Him. That's fine, but that's not how you get saved. Uh, again, as a believer in that second column, as we walk by faith and seek to overcome sin's, sin's power in the power of the Spirit, of course, every day we ought to give our lives to the Lord, give our all to the Lord. That's part of the discipleship process. But that's not how you begin your relationship with the Lord. Uh, you can give all you want to the Lord, but you have nothing to give until He comes into your life and, and, and makes you new. You're regenerated. Those 33 things that happen instantly the moment we believe the gospel. We spent quite a bit of time talking about how the gospel is not repenting of your sin, another common terminology, but I've demonstrated more than adequately that that term is never used in Scripture as a means of receiving eternal life. In fact, repenting of sin is very seldom used in any context. Uh, repentance, the verb uh, or the noun repentance and the verb repent are used a combined total of 58 times in the New Testament, and the vast majority of those have nothing to do with the eternal salvation. It just means changing your mind. That's what repent means. And so somehow along the way, because of a confusion between Jesus' message to Israel and John the Baptist's message to Israel and Jesus' teaching in the Gospels and blurring that with Paul's teaching in the Epistles and other doctrinal teaching in the Epistles, we've sort of conflated this notion into a alleged two-sided coin, repent and believe, which makes, as I've said, salvation into two steps. Anytime you have an and before believe, you've created an additional requirement. It's not blank and believe, it's believe, believe, believe. 160 plus times the New Testament says simply believe. And uh, so we don't want to add anything to it. And I've dealt with every one of the references to repent or repentance in the entire New Testament in an appendix at the back of my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, if you really want to dive in and, and uh, study each one of those in their context. But we want to get away from telling people if they'll turn from their sins, they'll be saved. Because nobody gets saved by turning from sin. You, know? you could quit sinning tomorrow, cold turkey, and you're no more saved than you were before you quit sinning. Because it's not repenting of sins that saves, it's faith alone. Similarly, it's not surrendering to Jesus as Lord and Master. This is often called Lordship Salvation. It's essentially Reformed theology, the <clears throat> Calvinist approach to understanding the gospel. That in order to really believe, you can't just believe it. You've got to promise or pledge to do something. You've got to put yourself under His authority. And uh, that concept does not come up in any other context about belief anywhere in the historical literature or anywhere in just common usage, right? Uh, if I were to say to you, do you believe, um, let's say, do you believe the Rockies are going to win the World Series? And you said, man, yeah, I believe it. Oh, so you're now putting yourself under the authority of the Colorado Rockies? I mean, it would, it would make no sense. It doesn't even connect. It's like a complete non sequitur. And yet somehow, theologically, again, coming out of Calvinism, particularly neo-Calvinism, uh, the more modern Calvinistic teaching, 
They've redefined faith to mean not just believing and being confident in something, but actually promising to obey something. I don't know how those two terms got mixed together, but it's become uh, so common as to be a fact that's, that's, you know, when I come across hard-line uh, Calvinists who've been taught this their whole lives, and I even suggest that, that's, that faith means something other than confidence or assurance, they look at me like I'm nuts because it's just so ingrained in their thinking. But if you look up the word pistuo, which means believe, or pistis, which means faith, the noun, in a Greek lexicon, any Greek lexicon, even you know ancient Greek, uh, non-biblical language, classic Greek, it never has anything to do with anything other than confidence or assurance. It never has to do with putting yourself under someone's authority and obeying them. It's complete uh, non sequitur. And yet today, people believe that if you trusted Christ, but you didn't promise to obey Him in that moment, you didn't make Him Lord, you're not really saved because you don't understand that concept. So um, we talked a lot about that. Then we talked about how the gospel is not inviting or asking Jesus into your heart or life. We talked about how that confuses the result of salvation with the means of salvation. The means of salvation is what? Faith, right? Trusting in Christ. There are 33 things that happen instantaneously the moment you believe in Christ, such as Christ taking up residence in our heart. We looked at some of those passages. But nowhere does the Bible ever use the terms ask or invite Jesus into our heart as a means of being saved. So we want to avoid using that language. Then we said the gospel is not praying a prayer. And by that I mean a formulaic uh, quotation of the sinner's prayer. That's not how you get saved. You get saved by faith. It is true, and I mentioned this, that faith is often expressed in the form of a prayer. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that at all. I'm not against prayer. I want to go on record. I'm in favor of prayer, okay? Just in case anybody wonders it. Just like I'm against sin. I'm not suggesting you shouldn't repent of sin. If you're sinning, you should repent. That's just not going to get you to heaven. Um, so I'm against sin. I'm for prayer, just to be clear. But uh, the gospel is not praying a prayer. The gospel is faith. And unfortunately, because of this notion of the sinner's prayer, we've, we've created a, an unfortunate circumstance where someone might think that their home in heaven is secure because they recited a prayer. In fact, I've even seen gospel tracts that come right out and call it. Okay, you ready to be saved? You, you, you realize you're a sinner and you need a saver? Then recite the sinner's prayer, colon, and then they list it in quotation marks, as if if you just say that, you'll be saved. And that's very misleading. Uh, we need to uh, get away from that and get back to inviting people to trust Christ. Trust Christ. Then we said the gospel is not forsaking your old ways, similar to repenting of sin, but, uh, you know, people... The reason I bring, bring this one up and put it on the list is that some people will say, no, you don't have to repent of sin, but you have to be willing to repent of sin. And they make a distinction there. Well, that's a distinction without a difference in my mind, because either way, you're making your volitional choice about your behavior the determining factor of whether or not you get to heaven. And so you don't have to forsake your old ways. In fact, you can't forsake your old ways. And by the way, you don't have to forsake your old ways as a believer. I encourage you to do so, because if you don't, there are serious consequences for any believer who persists in a perpetual state of sin. And in fact, uh, when you understand 
grace and the freeness of grace and the purity of the gospel and the fact that Jesus paid it all, I think then you can really see correctly the biblical teaching about sin in the life of a believer and you can see the remedy for it. Instead of making it all about heaven or hell and just saying hastily that any believer who's persisting in sin is definitely not a Christian, instead you say, no, I don't know if they're a Christian or not, but I know their behavior has nothing to do with whether they're a Christian. Their, their eternal destiny is based upon whether they've placed their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. Having said that, now let's deal with the sanctification issue. Let's deal with that second column. And when you understand the gospel clearly, you, you understand the Bible has a lot to say about sin in the life of a believer. We have a, a DVD, um, or at least we used to. I'm not sure if we still have it uh, on the online store, but it's called The Awfulness of Sin, in which I talk about the devastating effects of sin in the life of a believer. It brings with it temporal consequences, natural consequences. It brings lack of blessing on earth. It brings squandered opportunities. It brings God's discipline. It brings a bad example to other believers and to your children and those young people that are watching you. It brings loss of rewards in heaven. All kinds of consequences of sin. But yet we are so prone to boil it all down to, oh, well, he must not be a Christian or she must not be a Christian because they're sinning. And again, I'm not suggesting that everyone who says they're a Christian is definitely a Christian. We know there are many false professors in the church today. But what makes them not a believer is not their behavior. It's the fact that they've never trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation. That's all that matters, that one thing, the gospel. Have you believed the gospel or not? And then last week we spent quite a bit of time talking about how the gospel is not a public uh, profession. And uh, we went through Romans 10. Uh, and, and that was a really uh, good discussion. And by the way, it's generated some discussion separately. There's a, uh, another Bible teacher who's got quite a following, much bigger following than Not By Works, who is out there championing the free grace gospel and, and, and encouraging people to accept the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message. And we've interacted a few times because he, at one point months ago, pointed people to something I had taught, and I'd never met him. But anyway, we connected, and so he happens to be teaching on this same subject. And uh, when he taught through Romans 10 just this past week, I emailed him and said, or texted him, I think it was, and said, hey, great, I totally agree with your conclusions, but I think you've missed some of the context of Romans 10. We had a good, healthy dialogue. He ends up doing another video, basically kind of presenting the view that I uh, espoused in our uh, session last week here on uh, Wednesday nights. And so uh, we need to understand that Romans 10 does not teach that you have to publicly confess Christ as Savior. Romans 10 is in the context of Israel. And he's saying that Israel, like any Jew, like any human being, has to believe the gospel to be saved eternally. But then the nation of Israel, having first believed the gospel, will call on the name of the Lord, Joel 2.32, which uh, Paul quotes in Romans 10.13, and be ushered into the kingdom, be delivered, saved into the kingdom. And the context couldn't be more clear about that when you connect the dots and you look at the antecedents of the pronouns. Plus in chapter 10, verse 1 of Romans, he begins by talking about the plural they, well, people don't get eternally saved as a group. It's not like, you know, we can have a group of 100 people and say all at once, okay, it, you know, you all are saved. No, they get you get saved individually, but from the penalty of sin, eternally saved. 
but you do get saved temporarily into the kingdom as a nation, and that's what the Old Testament prophets talked about at length, and that's what Paul is talking about there. And, and the reason we spend so much time in Romans 10 is because that's pretty much the only passage that even remotely alludes. I mean, there are a couple others. Matthew 10 is one, and uh, think of 2 Timothy 2. Uh, but by and large, when people claim that you've got to publicly proclaim Christ to go to heaven, this is the passage they point to in Romans 10. So I've dealt with that in a two-disc uh, set called Accounted as Righteous, where I deal with Romans 10, 9, and 10 if you're interested. And so then that brings us to the final one, which is pretty straightforward, and that is the gospel is not inclusive. The gospel is not inclusive. So what do we mean by that? Well, even if you understand the previous nine mistakes in the gospel, sometimes people will say that, you know, yeah, it's just simply trusting in Christ alone, but that's not the only way, because if you're part of another religion, you can believe in Allah or believe in Muhammad the prophet or whoever, and, is, and the Lord will count your faith as if you were believing in Jesus. It's called evangelical inclusivism. And uh, not to get too theological, or actually I'll hold off on that because I think, yeah, I'm gonna, I've got some slides that I'll diagram that out for you in a second. So the, the, the idea here is that uh, and by the way, a lot of popular preachers, uh, either throughout their ministry or at the very end of their ministry, espoused this view. In my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, I quote Billy Graham as emphatically saying that a Muslim who has genuine faith in Allah will go to heaven. So that's Billy Graham. Okay? Now, he didn't always believe that, but near the end of his life, he changed his view. Joel Osteen, same thing. Uh, a lot of evangelical Christian leaders are unwilling to state what the Bible says and what Jesus plainly said. Uh, I'm not. I mean, I'm not perfect. I've got more than my share of flaws, but I've never seen why a, a Bible teacher would be so hesitant to stand firmly on what the Lord says. And the Lord said, no one comes to the Father except through me. So if you have not placed your personal faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, you will not go to heaven. I mean, that's just that's one of the most basic principles in the New Testament. Uh, you know, in, in Acts chapter 4, uh, Peter is, is testifying, there is salvation in no other name under heaven but Jesus. That's it. Uh, so it's not a, salvation's not a buffet line where, you know, we, we think, Jesus, they think Allah, they think Buddha, they think whatever, and you know, that all roads lead to heaven. Salvation, that's Jesus died as the only one who could pay man's penalty. See, what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world is the fact that we serve a risen God. That it was God, the creator of the universe, who paid the penalty. You know, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. I was talking to someone in Tulsa at our resource booth between sessions about Jehovah's Witnesses, and I pointed out that you know their Bible has a different reading in John 1.1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. They insert the word there, little g, because they don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, that He's God in the flesh, that He is deity. Jehovah's, Jehovah's Witnesses, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this is very important. And again, people say, well, what about those who've never heard? 
Well, the Bible addresses that in Romans 1 and 2. It talks about how creation itself and providence and conscience bear witness to God, and no one is without excuse, right? Nobody. Everybody has heard and is aware there's a God, and if you will respond to general revelation, which is not sufficient to save you, nobody can, nobody can get saved by looking at a tree or at the sun, but what does happen is when you look at a tree and the, and the sun, you recognize there's a creator, and if you acknowledge that, God will send you special revelation, the Bible tells us, so that you'll hear the gospel. But nobody can be saved without hearing and believing the gospel. Uh, that's, that's just so plain. We're going back to Romans 10. Uh, how can they hear without a preacher? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You've got to hear and believe the gospel. So uh, I believe that God can present the gospel in any number of miraculous ways. Um, you know, our passion at Not By Works is the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. And one of the sessions I'm doing in Fresno next weekend after next is on how to share the gospel clearly. And I think you can do it any number of ways. You can do it through videos, through one-on-one -on -one sitting down at a coffee shop, through handing someone a gospel tract, through showing them a movie, through inviting them to an evangelistic crusade where the gospel is being presented accurately. All kinds of ways. But one thing that's common throughout all of it is they've got to hear the gospel to believe it. They can't get saved without hearing the gospel. And that's the reason that in this present age, the church age, we're given the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. If somebody who had never heard the gospel, just think about this with me. If someone who has never heard the gospel automatically goes to heaven when they die, then frankly the worst thing we can do to get people into heaven is spread the gospel around the world. Because the minute we share it, now they're accountable, right? And so we should keep it hush-hush. Don't tell them they're safe. They're going to heaven, right? And boy, you don't want to tell them the gospel because then they have a choice to make. Are they going to believe it or reject it? But no, it's precisely because... All of mankind is dead in their trespasses and sins and can only be made alive by faith alone and Christ alone. And so we've got to share the gospel. And, and that God is not unfair in that. He, again, you know, God's incredible love and mercy is that is seen in the fact that anybody goes to heaven. Because God would be perfectly just the minute we sin in having us all die and spend eternity separated from him. Because that's what he said would happen. In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Uh, Genesis 2. But he took the added step of providing the remedy for our predicament that we got ourselves into, and all we have to do is receive it. And again, he's already said in his word that he's made himself known to all the world. All you got to do is respond to that revelation, and he'll make sure you hear uh, the gospel. And people, t testimonies abound of people in the deepest, darkest jungles who have, in miraculous ways sometimes, heard the gospel. And, uh, but they heard the gospel, right? And uh, so the same thing is true in the tribulation period after the rapture. The, we know that according to Revelation 7, the 144,000 Jewish witnesses, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel will be saved. The Bible doesn't tell us how they're saved, but we know by comparing Scripture with Scripture that they, like every other human being, have to hear and believe the gospel. We don't know what that looks like. Is God going to write the gospel in clouds in the sky? Is he going to... Um, send them a message in a bottle? Is he going to have them all uh, read their Bible? Or, I mean, how, but somehow, those 144,000 will hear and believe the gospel, and then they become the missionaries that go out and spread the gospel throughout the world during that final seven-year period. 
but everybody has to hear and believe the gospel. And there's only one way to do that. So I promised I would, uh, or I mentioned a moment ago, I would talk about uh, and chart out for you the four broad appro approaches to salvation. Uh, so everybody, I shouldn't say everybody, most religions acknowledge there's a problem. And that is, man is sinful, man is bad, a lot, of Christ, a lot of religions don't use the word sin, but they recognize man has a problem, right? I mean, it's self-evident when you look at the atrocities that mankind has perpetrated on one another through human history, religion, all these different pagan religions are just their attempt to sort of figure that out and solve that problem. Now, we know, because the Bible tells us, that the problem is rooted in, in the depravity of man, in original sin. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. That's the problem. And you cannot solve the problem externally. It's got to be solved internally. And that happens, of course, by faith, which we're about to diagram out. But every religion essentially is trying to figure out how can we go from the problem man has into heaven, or whatever they call heaven, nirvana, paradise, you know, whatever, re you know, recreation or uh, reincarnation, whatever their positive experience after death is, right? Uh, so that's the problem. How do you do that, right? And uh, so some have suggested, and this is what you call religious pluralism, that it works like this. Sinful man plus essentially anything that could be faith, it could be your own efforts at self-improvement, it could be your good works, it could be different religions in the pathway that they choose, like Catholicism and its seven sacraments, or it could be any combination of the above. But basically, religious pluralism says, choose your own path, but you can get there. You can get there on your own. I remember doing a funeral one time, and uh, <clears throat> uh, I, when I first started in ministry years ago, uh, when Wendy and I were first married, I was at a, a small church in central Illinois and really sweet group of people, really uh, have fond memories of our time there. But uh, it was one of those churches where the, the, the church had been around for 150 years. There had been more pastors than there have been presidents of the United States. And so it had a longstanding connection with the, uh, with the uh, funeral home in town that whenever someone died who didn't have a church, they would have the pastor of this Baptist church come do the funeral. So I found myself doing a ton of funerals, which was good for a young 25-year-old preacher because I kind of cut my teeth and, and, and learned. But I was, it was one of those funerals where it wasn't a church person, and I didn't know the deceased. But uh, uh, before the funeral, I was standing with some of the family up front, and they were having the viewing where you walk by the body, and then at the appointed time, they would close the casket and the service would begin. And I, a fellow that knew the deceased said to me, you didn't know old Bob or whatever his name was, but he said, but you know, and he started telling me a little bit about his journey. He said, you know, he's, he was raised in Episcopal. Then he, when he got married, he became a Methodist. And then at some point in his life, they got mad and they went over to the Baptist church. And then for a while, he quit going to church. And then he got divorced and his second wife was a Catholic. So he got confirmed in the Catholic church. And then he... He kind of stepped back and had a little chuckle, and he said, so you know, Pastor, I guess he's pretty much got it covered. One way or the other, he's getting in. And I didn't have the heart, you know, at that moment to, you know, disagree with him and start getting into an apologetic about faith alone and Christ alone. Uh, but you know, that's the attitude that a lot of people have, that there are multiple ways to heaven, 
and pretty much anything goes. But that's not the testimony of Scripture. And then, as I mentioned, uh, really in the, tie, in, the, in the label for this tenth point, that the gospel is not inclusive, within Christianity, within those who believe in the biblical uh, narrative, there is what's called evangelical inclusivism. And what they teach is that, yes, Christ's death paid the penalty. They, in other words, they believe that Jesus Christ was born, lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, died for our sins, was buried, and rose again the third day. They believe that, but they don't think that belief in that is required, that his death and resurrection are the basis for any Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu getting saved, but they come to their destiny in heaven by faith in anything. So faith in Jesus Christ is not the only way. This is what we call evangelical inclusivism. The problem with that is, as we just saw, Jesus teaches an exclusive faith. It's only by faith in Him. He made it plain in John 5, if you do not believe in me, you'll die in your sins. So how can someone who's never heard and believed that Jesus died and rose again for their sins be saved? So we reject that as well. And then among secularists who don't even believe the Bible and really have no use for any religion and really don't even believe in a creator, they worship at the altar of Darwin, uh, their perspective is basically like this, heaven. Everybody goes there. There really isn't a problem. They believe in the inherent goodness of mankind. So you notice there's no sinful man in this diagram because they don't see that as a problem. They recognize that there are bad people, but they consider that to be the exception, amazingly enough. They think that people are inherently good. So therefore, they're universalist. Everybody gets to heaven, but the Bible does not teach that. So the Bible teaches biblical exclusivism. Sinful man is lost and on the road to hell apart from faith alone in Christ alone, which rescues him from the penalty of sin once for all at the moment he places his or her faith in Jesus Christ and results in an eternity in heaven. That's the biblical model. So we either believe the Bible for what it says, or uh, you know, we, we, you, you have to reject it. You cannot pick and choose uh, what parts of the Bible. So any questions about that before we summarize and, and wrap up? Yeah, Gary. So the person that made the comment, all dogs go to heaven, would have been a secular well, they would have been just uh, secular wacko. Is, is kind of the that's oh, the technical I said dogs, term. Not cats. Well, I mean, same thing. So that's the question. Um, let me put it this way: I think if it were up to me, dogs would go to heaven and cats would go to that other place. <laughs> but but uh, <laughs> but uh, no. So uh, uh, that's actually. I know you were kind of saying that tongue-in-cheek, but that's actually a good thing to point out that I don't know that we've really talked about in any of our discussions over the last several weeks, but what distinguishes mankind from every other created being is we are the only ones who are made in the image of God and have an eternal soul. We understand that, right? So animals, plants, trees, every other living organism does not have a soul. We do. That's what makes us in the image of God. And so... Only the souls of human beings can be redeemed. When an animal uh, dies, they cease to exist. They go, you know, their physical body and carcass goes into the ground and eventually becomes dust, and, but there's nothing else to them. They're not, 
two-dimensional, like we believe the Bible teaches mankind is, uh, material and immaterial. They're just material. Doesn't mean they're not sentient. We see examples in the Bible of all kinds of animals that have incredible senses, but that's not the same thing as a soul. Remember we talked about, when I was talking about immaterial and material, and we talked about body, soul, and spirit. The soul is that part of us that's that has our mind, will, and emotions. The spirit is that part of us, and I know I said soul in just a minute, and I'll explain, but the spirit is that part of us that's born dead and has to be regenerated so that we can communicate with God. So animals have those emotions, but they don't have the the eternal soul, meaning soul spirit, that mankind has that will live on forever, either in heaven or hell. So, and then people will inevitably say, well, how come we see animals in the kingdom someday? Well, that doesn't mean they were once alive on earth and then died and it went to heaven and appeared. They were born during the kingdom, right? So animals that are alive when Christ comes back, I mean, they're in the kingdom by virtue of being on the earth. They didn't, he's, they're not like, you know, saved or unsaved that Jesus separates and lets you, you know, in based on your faith. They're just here. But an animal that dies in the kingdom ceases to exist, you know, as well. So, yeah. There is a reference, though, is there not, when Christ returns with, with we believers, it's going to be aboard horses. Absolutely, yeah. You know? Yeah. So in some way or another, horses have got a special place. Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. So that's, uh, I think that's a, a metaphor in Scripture that we see starting in six one with the Antichrist on a white horse and then ultimately the one true Christ on a white horse and us riding with him. But, you know, there are spiritual manifestations of physical things. We see spiritual manifestations of chariots. We see physical manifestations of other animals in the cosmic realm. So I don't take that to be a flesh and blood biological horse. I, I, think, it to see, I think it to be a spiritual horse, right? I don't know. Yeah. So, because we don't have any biblical record that God created another biological place other than the earth, right? So, but we do have biblical examples of in the cosmic uh, realm, physic, you know, spiritual beings manifesting as physical beings. It would be the same thing as uh, like in Hebrews, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, when an angel, a good angel, uh, manifests as a human being. And, and the writer says, be careful to entertain strangers because that might be an angel. Now, that's actually a spiritual being but it takes on a physical form and looks like you and me, right? But that they're not biological. They're not, they don't have flesh and blood. They just look like it, right? They're spiritual beings. And we have other examples of battles in the heavenlies uh, involving chariots and involving other things. So uh, I think that's what's happening, and I get into this in, in the spirit of the paranormal or the phenomenal in that series of Spirit of the Antichrist. I think we're seeing a lot of spirit beings, particularly un, particularly fallen angels or demons, manifesting in, in physical ways. So there's no question we're going to be riding on white horses with Christ. I think it's an open question what that is. I, I, it's really horses, but does that mean that horses died and the saved ones go to heaven and then the saved ones are the ones that are coming back? I don't, I don't think so. And, and you weren't saying that either, but no, I'm just, but I'm just to be clear. God is God and he's capable of doing anything. Correct. Yeah, God is God, and He can do anything, of course. 
accept, contradict his word, or you know, he can't lie like the Bible says, those kinds of things. But yeah, there will be animals in the kingdom, no question. But they will not be the resurrected dead animals from this life. Yeah. Oh boy, it's uh, Satan. Ultimately, it was part of the ancient, uh, you know, Babylonian mystery religions and ancient Near Eastern cultic religions, Greek and Roman, and so forth. Um, in fact, I read an interesting thing just this week. Uh, I got into a really encouraging and, and helpful for me discussion with someone again in Tulsa. That's one of the reasons I love speaking at these conferences. Is just I learn more than anybody ever learns from me, just from the dialogue and hearing the other speakers, but about Genesis 6 and the Nephilim and all that. And so and as a follow-up to that, the discussion continued by email, and someone sent me just today an article that kind of describes the, the really the whole notion of the whole Greek pantheon of gods and, and so forth, where you have gods cohabiting with earthly beings as being spin-offs from the actual event that did happen in human history, according to the Bible, in Genesis 6, with the angels cohabiting with women. So I think back in that day, you had all kinds of competing uh, stories that were perversions of the biblical text and the biblical narrative, the true narrative. So you have, for example, other stories of a global flood in, in other pagan religions. But they come after God revealed what happened to Moses uh, back in the days of Noah, so I don't, I can't pinpoint an exact year. I'm sure it can be pinpointed. I just don't know enough about it to know. But it, it originates ultimately in the false, you know, satanic religions. Anything else? Good questions. So we'll summarize. These are the again the five, uh, the ten things. Gospel is not a commitment, a contract. It's not giving something to the Lord or repenting of your sin or surrendering to Jesus as Lord and Master. It's not inviting or asking Jesus into your heart. It's not praying a prayer or forsaking your old ways or a public profession. And it's certainly not inclusive. So what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died and rose again to pay your personal penalty for sins and that He is the only one who can give you the free gift of eternal life. And if you believe that, you're saved. It's that simple. So for further study, uh, my newest book is The Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell, which again dives into what is the gospel and, and why don't people believe the gospel. Uh, even before that, I discuss a lot of false gospel presentations in getting the gospel wrong. Freely by His Grace uh, is a monumental work. I just wrote two chapters in it, but I was privileged to be the editor along with Roy Zook and Rick Whitmire. And I think it's a comprehensive treatment of the doctrine of salvation, soteriology, in all aspects of it. And there's a great chapter in there about sin in the Christian life, another uh, that uh, Mike Stallard wrote, another great chapter by Kurt Witzig on the Christian life and how we should live out our lives. Have you had a chance to dive into that yet? Yeah, I've read four chapters. Good. Has it been helpful? It's been interesting. It's good. been uh, broadening. Good, good, good. Well, that's great. So I highly recommend that. And then, of course, just for a simple little primer on the gospel, my little 80 to 100 page booklet, The Gospel Unplugged, just presents the gospel without any footnotes or theological jargon, just real simple. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And then uh, someday down the road, we may get back in 
to this. I've not actually done this here, but it'd be good to kind of review it. Uh, what is Calvinism and is it biblical? And all of that's available at Not By Works. Yeah. So yeah, the 33 things that happen the moment you're saved. Um, the, I talk about it in the Game of the Gospel. I'm trying to remember if I actually list them. I know I have a footnote, but um, uh, if you'll email me, I'll email you. Lewis Berry Chaffer's the one who, in his systematic theology, delineated these 33 things. And so that's the easiest place to go, and I can kind of clip that from his book and send it to you. But I know I footnote in this book and make reference to that, um, and then I, I and can you know give you the page number and so forth. So, any anything else? All right. Well, thank you guys. And again, no midweek Bible study the next two weeks, but we will resume on the twenty sixth. Twenty third. Why do I keep saying the twenty? <laughs> Today's the. Doesn't it mean it's just plain wrong? 16th, 20th, oh, because 21 days from today we'll meet. Yeah, that's why. All right, so because we don't meet next week, we don't meet two weeks from today, which would be 16th, we meet the 23rd. So despite my confusion, I'm confident that you all are not confused. It's three weeks from today will be our next uh, meeting. Thank you, guys.